Thanks for joining us on Battle Walks as we walk across the great battlefields of Europe. If you're enjoying the show, why not become a member? Every week, you'll receive exclusive bonus episodes available only to subscribers, and you can listen to all our episodes completely ad-free. Click on the link in the show notes to join us via ACAST+. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction. And free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast, and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com acast. A Living History Production. I'm Matt McLaughlin. And I'm Pete Smith. We're battlefield historians who love nothing better than getting out and walking the ground where great battles in history took place. And now we'd like you to come with us. Every week, Battle Walks will take you to one of the great battlefields of Europe. As we walk the ground, we'll dig through the pages of history, we'll uncover the secrets of the battlefields, and most importantly, we'll tell the stories of the people who fought and died there. Welcome to Battle Walks. Hello and thank you for joining us on another episode of Battle Walks as we walk across the great battlefields of Europe. Thank you, like always, for listening in and thank you for sending your feedback in. Whether you choose to do that via Twitter or Facebook to contact us and make suggestions or just to tell us you're enjoying the series, as many people have done, we really appreciate that. But also, if you want to get in touch, if you want to communicate with us, please um, leave a review for the podcast, particularly on Apple Podcasts. It means a lot to us if people review and leave, hopefully, a five-star rating on there. Um, Apple then tend to promote the podcast a little bit more. We can get more listeners and bring you more great content. But just thanks for being part of the Battle Walks team. We've seen thousands of new listeners over the last month or so, uh, and it's really exciting. The podcast really taking off. We're doing it because we love doing it, uh, but it's also great that uh, so many people are joining us on this journey, particularly in these times when we can't get out and walk the battlefields for real. It's great to be doing it in a virtual sense, and doing that with me today, like always, is my dear friend. It's Pete Smith. Pete, welcome back. Hey, Matt. Nice to be here again. Mate, we're doing a good one today. I think both of us are really looking forward to this because for, for those who don't know, Pete and I have worked together for many years leading Battlefield Tours um, with my company, Matt McLaughlin Battlefield Tours. Pete lives in France and is one of the leading Battlefield guides over there. And for, for probably right, coming up to a decade, I'd say, you've been leading tours for us around the battlefields. And obviously those have an Australian theme as most of our passengers are Australian. So we love the Australian battlefields. And this is a very special Australian battlefield, isn't it, Pete? It is indeed, yeah. It, and it's one one of my favourites because it's a very visual battlefield from multiple locations you can effectively see. And we're talking specifically about the Australian attacks here at Bullycore. Um, you can see uh, exactly where uh, where it all happened. And one of those rare battlefields that, well, like our Dernancourt discussion we did many weeks ago, we talked about walking the battlefield of Dernancourt. Bullycore is another one that is effectively unchanged. When you stand at the start line and look out across no man's land, minus the shell craters and the barbed wire and the machine guns, but you are looking out across the same stretch of land that the diggers looked out on 
when they were here in 1917 and you look to the left and see the village it's you know the the layout of this battlefield is unchanged and that gives you a, a, a fantastic perspective on just what these men had to go through. I love walking this battlefield, Pete. Even just the the little ripples in the land as you walk across no man's land, and you see a slight rise and that drops away. You really get that feeling again that you know in, in some places you're protected by the rolling layout of the land, in other places you're completely exposed. It is a really amazing battlefield for walking in the footsteps of the original soldiers of the First World War. Yeah, it could be quite chilling. And the other, I suppose, the great aspect is that uh, even during the periods when there are crops in the fields, and those crops obviously stop you walking all over, there are tracks and little roadways that mean that you can follow in the route of, of the attack without damaging crops. Of course, in the periods like we have now, where there's very little in the fields, it's a little muddy, but uh, you can walk across the fields now for those that uh, have no crops in, and you get a, an even better view, uh, feeling of, of what it was like. But it's uh, it's still a great battlefield even when the crops are in because you can follow these little tracks. And those tracks, of course, were instrumental in the fighting. They were there during the battle. They were pivotal landmarks on an otherwise fairly featureless battlefield. And they were important uh, routes for the troops to use. They were important landmarks. They were important dividers for different units so that the tracks that you're going to be walking along on this walk uh, were instrumental in the battle itself. Yep, absolutely. So we're, we're going to start this uh, this uh, battlefield tour, and this is going to be a tour of the battlefield. So it's not per se uh, following in any battalion's attack. We're just going to be looking at what there is to see. Um, I think which is the way that the majority of people that come to the battlefield, they will read about it, and then they'll want to walk, as we do, uh, around it. So we're going to start at perhaps the most... Uh, very obvious feature, the, the Bull Corps Digger. That's one thing. I'll just get, let's get this out of the way. How do we say this name? Bully Court is how most Australians who, uh, who have not heard it's been spoken, because that's what it looks like, Bully Court. But it's actually Bull Corps is the, the way that uh, we pronounce it. So, Pete, let's talk about the battle, well, the battles of Bull Corps and, and their huge significance to Australians. I mean, this was an important British action that was going on as well. And the French were participating too, but but specifically the the battles of Bull Corps became very important to the Australians. We're, we're, as you said, we're not going to do a full comprehensive history. This is two very large, complicated battles. We're not going to go into the minute detail of these battles, but we'll we'll do one of your excellent potted histories, Pete, where you explain where we are, why it's important, and what went on here in the fields around us. Okay, well, it's a continuation of our previous podcast, really, in many ways. We've covered some aspects of the Battle of the Somme in 1916, and that finished in the November of 1916. Um, We then then covered, uh, a few podcasts ago, we covered uh, Bapome and the fighting uh, or the taking of Bapome in 1917 as the Germans withdraw back to the Hindenburg Line. And that's where we are. We are actually on the Hindenburg Line. So, again, we, we have followed the Australian soldiers... Uh, during the Battle of the Somme, we covered. We haven't done a full uh, a podcast about Poissier yet, but it's one that will come eventually. So you imagine the Battle of Poissier for Australians. They then go into the front line around my village where I live, Flair, and hold that line in the winter. Several small actions there. Well, small uh, logistically, very heavy casualties. Um, and then in the spring of 1917, we get the Germans falling back and the, the Australian troops here around where I, where I live are going to follow them. And they're going to follow them as they... Uh, are falling back. We're go- they're going to push them. So there's an element of push as well as them falling back. And they're falling back on the Hindenburg line. And we're going to then uh, join, and that's what this podcast is going to be about, is first of all, the Australians moving into the line and then attempting to move them from the Hindenburg line. There is a belief, we'll go into some of the aspects of why this is taking place, but there is a belief that if we don't give, leave the Germans long enough to settle in their new positions of the Hindenburg line. And one of the things that we have to remember is 
We always, if you've read anything about the, the Great War, the Hindenburg Line is seen as this enormous structure that's been built to uh, as a fallback position for the Germans and one that they're going to use. Well, it wasn't all finished. There are areas that were not completely finished. So it wasn't an, if you read some of the German reports, they will be saying the German soldiers who fell back into the Hindenburg Line were not very happy. They thought that they were falling back into a well-prepared, finished position, but it's not completely finished. But here around Bulkor, then there are going to be big problems for the Australians attacking these, these positions that have been pre-prepared, but not completely completed. We should mention as well that the village itself was an integral part of the defences that the Germans had constructed there. Their concept was they would build this line. I mean, they did it at every phase of the war. They did it in 1916. They did it in 1918. Their, their concept was that they would incorporate villages into the, the, the defensive structure of the line. The village itself would become part of the fortifications. And that was certainly the case at Bulacor. And if you look at a map, you will see that the Hindenburg line stretches a little bit behind Bulacor and then curves around and actually incorporates the whole village into the defensive system. And we should also mention at this stage, Pete, this was not just a solely Australian attack. There were British units fighting here as well, uh, particularly in the village, uh, which was some of the toughest fighting on the battlefield. Yep, um, in, indeed. Um, the British 62nd Division is the division that will assault on the 11th of April, and that's the date that we're going to start off discussing because it's an important date. Um, in lots of ways, it's uh, the first time that the Australians are going to operate with tanks, uh, and that's probably one of the most interesting aspects, this this first time that the, uh, the, the tanks are used with Australian troops, so we're going to be c- uh, covering that. Um, and that's on the 11th of uh, April. The second battle of Bulkar is, uh, begins on the 5th of May and we'll be covering and discussing that just just briefly because it's the same place there's no no difference and only marginal differences in the in the way that it's attacked on that second attempt to take it but it's a much longer battle and and it is successfully taken and that's something we should just say here whether you think it there was any reason for taking it and we'll discuss that as the tour uh, as, as as we discuss it during the podcast but whether you think it was necessary and, and whether you think that there was a reason to, it is a success. We do take a section of the Hindenburg Line, which is going to be held by Australians uh, at the end of the battle. We should, uh, talking about, so there's two great battles, as you mentioned, the two battles of Bulacor in April and May. Uh, without, As we said, without getting bogged down too much in the history, the one thing that I did want to illustrate is that the the second battle, even though it was the, the casualty rate was was horrific in the second battle, as you said, it was successful. They did take the the Hindenburg line over a period of several weeks in May 1917. But the one in April was a complete disaster. And the, the, the battle took place on the 11th of April in 1917. It was really effectively a one-day battle. The Australians attacked. Many parallels to Fromel, actually. They attacked, they got into the German lines, uh, and the Germans came back, counterattacked, and overwhelmed them. Um, but the one thing we should mention as well is the battle actually was supposed to take place on the 10th of April. It was so poorly organised that the Australian troops lay out in fresh snow on the 10th of April, ready to attack. They were waiting for tanks to arrive to support them. The tanks were so late in arriving that it was already daylight. This was supposed to be a night attack. It was already daylight and the tanks still hadn't turned up. And so the commanding officers simply said to all the men, okay, we're postponing, so head back to your support areas. And the, the quotes I've read said that the men streamed back from the front line in broad daylight, like a crowd leaving a football match, which is quite extraordinary. And then the next day... So they got back. So they marched all day to get back to their billets and to get set up. They got a little bit of sleep. And then again, in the middle of the night, they received word from their commanding officers, okay, we're heading back to where we started to do it again tonight. And I just wanted to share, actually, I think it's important that we spell out the disaster the first battle was. And I wanted to share a quote here from Wilfred Galway of the 47th Battalion, who was heading up to the battlefields to the same position for the second time 
in two days. And here's how he described just his exhaustion as he returned to the front line. I carried my rifle in my left hand, just holding it by the sling and trailing the butt through the mud. It was too much energy to carry it any other way. Knees were giving way and I was plodding on like in a dream. Of what use would I be to fight tonight? My body was in a wretched state of weakness. And doesn't that just sum it up? This idea that, I mean, we've all been in a situation where we've had to be up all night and got no sleep or had to do, you know, some, some, you know, had to be at the airport early in the morning or whatever these, you know, shallow little things we do in our human lives are. We've all been in that situation where we've been tired, missing sleep, just wanting to get to bed. But imagine the situation for these men that after a full night of no sleep, they then have to go and fight a battle. It's just extraordinary that they put them through this. And we see it time and time again, don't we, Pete? Well, we do indeed. I think uh, here extraordinary as well because a lot of these guys were fairly recent, uh, new to the front line. We always imagine that, yes, we've had the Battle of Poitiers that winter of 1617, but there's been an awful, during that period of the of the winter, there's been an influx of, of new guys. And for a lot of the men that are going to take, play, take part in this battle, this in fact is their first battle and their first experience of the front line. And so you can imagine this being mucked about and that's how they would perceive it was just exhausting, both mentally, uh, because you somehow imagine, I suppose, that uh, you know that the officers, the people that uh, are in charge, are going to know exactly what's going on and, and hopefully put you in the right place for the right time. And to discover that there is a, an element of, of, of confusion, and that would be an understatement, I think was a big shock to a lot of men who, up to that point, believed that, that those that were leading them knew exactly what was going on. Well, it may be apocryphal, but I've heard it said several times that the first Battle of Bulacor was used in Staff College for many years after the First World War to demonstrate how not to fight a battle, particularly on the logistics front, the organisation, the, the planning. And it was certainly an absolute disaster. And even though the Australians, as I said, did break into the trenches, um, they were overrun by the Germans. And this was the battle where the, the second largest number of Australian prisoners taken during the Great War were captured during the first Battle of Bulacor. First is the, the tragedy of Fromel. Um, but the, the second highest number of prisoners taken in a single action was uh, was here during the First Battle of Bulacor. So what I would suggest is is there's lots to read about it. It's a complicated battle. Both battles of Bulacor are very complicated. And, and as we said, we don't want to get too bogged down now talking about all the intricate details of the history. I think that's a good overview to begin with, Pete. So why don't let's do what we're here for. This is an amazing battlefield to walk. One of my absolute favourites. If you are going to walk a single Australian battlefield of the Great War, Bullcore would have to be right at the top of the list. So, Pete, let's let's get out and get our boots muddy and walk the ground. Where are we starting? Okay, so we're going to go to the Bullcore Digger. Um, this is a, a memorial park that was uh, created to commemorate the Australian effort. So this is very much uh, about Australia. The name uh, really says it, the, the Bullcore Digger. It is an Australian soldier on a plinth in bronze uh, in at the heart of the battlefield. Um if we were to go back, I'm just going to go back in time. Let's say we were we were going to have a look at this battlefield in the 1980s. There was absolutely nothing on the battlefield that would have told you that anything went on here. And there's an oddity in this area. There are no cemeteries. And that's partly because the recovery of bodies was so difficult. It was always a frontline position for most of the war. This was fought over. There was never really a clear opportunity where you could clear the battlefield, organise cemeteries. And so most of the cemeteries are concentration cemeteries created after the war. So when you're on the, the battlefield and you look around in any direction, there's no cemeteries to be seen. So if you were here uh, in the 80s, before any memorial was built at all, there was not, no memorials at all, you would actually just stand in these fields and have to try and work it out yourself without any help by, uh, uh, by any kind of uh, uh, panels that there are now several, which will give you an aid to, uh, to what is actually there on the battlefield. Well, we've talked about this before, haven't we, Pete, that... 
you know, we've had this discussion about the controversy of new memorials, and then in the last several decades, there's been a flurry of new memorials, particularly the Aussies. I mean, we are, we have been leading the charge in terms of transforming the battlefields into an, an Australian shrine. Uh, but I must say, the work that was done in the '90s. So, you know, so wherever you sit on this on the fence about the the memorials that are being opened today. I do have to say that the work that was done by people in the 90s was outstanding to mark those Australian battlefields at places like Hamel, at, at Frommel, um, and here, particularly at Bullecourt. Because as you say, there was there was nothing on the battlefield. I, I didn't go there until the 2000s, but 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 from everything that I um, that I've read about it, it was the, the the small number of visitors that did go there had absolutely no idea anything had gone on except the memories of the older people in the town. And so I think the work that was done here in the 90s, across the board, across the battlefields, was was really well done. It was officially sanctioned. It was organised by in conjunction with the Australian government and historians, and they did a great job of putting some very tasteful, very moving memorials in key places all over the battlefields. Uh, and those continue to fairly recent times. I mean, this is very much an integral part of the Australian trail, which takes you uh, from one side of the battlefield to the other the, in its entirety, the, the Australian uh, fighting on the Western Front. So this is very much part of that. I, I think I should just add something that in the 80s, there was an interest for the local people. The local people here in Bullcourt, it, it's odd. There are some places that, that uh, my village actually potentially would be one, where there's not a great deal of interest in what went on over 100 years ago. Um, but Bullcourt, was one of those villages they had a, a mayor who was very interested in the battlefields had been a, a collector of of relics from the fi- those fields for many years and that meant that there was a there was interest the bullcore was always ripe to have memorials built uh, on the uh, within the boundaries of the village because the villagers were interested so i think that's something that that needs to be pointed out so that everything that will will go ahead what we are going to discuss during this walk um is there because of the villagers wanted it to be there we should mention that Mayor Jean Latay, he um, he was instrumental in the Australian remembrance of of, of Bullcorn. We're going to tell his story as we go on, but we owe a lot to him for the work that he did preserving the memory of Australians at, at Bullcorn, uh, even to this day. Yeah, I mean, he, he's somebody that I, I knew and uh, and visited many times his own private museum, which we'll we'll, we'll discuss. So I think we'll get get back to where else we're not going to set off anywhere. So we'll get back to the uh, the Bullcore Digger. So the park uh, inaugurated on the 25th of April in 1992. Uh, one of the things that uh, we need to have a think about is that it didn't start off with the uh, the Bullcore Digger standing proudly on top of his plinth. It was just a memorial park with a little obelisk of stones. It will take to the following year. So you'd have to say they probably were aware what they were going to do but it was inaugurated without the uh, the bull cord digger on, on the top and he's the key part of this memorial um, and that was uh, inaugurated in 93 on the same day 25th of April Anzac Day uh, so uh, uh, it, it's a beautiful memorial it's one that I use to describe an Australian soldier's equipment because there he is walking to the front or walking back from the front you'd have to say he's not yet got to the front because he's wearing his, uh, his slouch hat um, his helmet is, uh, is, is on his, the back of his equipment and that's one of the keys you can look at this memorial and you can discuss the equipment the artist uh, Peter Collette who had also worked on uh, Simpson and his donkey and the Cobbers Memorial which is the one at Fromel um, and perhaps one of the ones that until recently I didn't know he'd worked on if you've ever visited the Australian War Memorial uh, there's uh, a sculpture which is a realistic depiction of a man, and it's called The Man in the Mud. And he also uh, was the uh, the artist that worked on that one, Peter Collette. So it's a, it's a great uh, imagery, and one that ha- I think always adds a little bit more, I think it's interesting, is the fact that his father uh, had actually fought at Bullcore. He had been here at Bullcore, 
And Peter didn't really think about that until he was actually creating the memorial. And eventually it was brought to his attention or he just realised uh, that his, his father had actually fought at Bulcor. And so he changes the features to that of his father. And I think that's nice. When we look at the memorial, it is actually the features are of a man who, who, who fought at the, uh, at the battle itself. The thing I really like about this sculpture as well is, is just the, the very relaxed attitude. It's not If you go to um, somewhere like Monson Quentin, for example, and see the Australian digger there, he's aggressive and legs spread and, you know, holding his rifle. He's, uh, you know, he's quite a, um, that's quite a, I won't say aggressive, but he's a, he's a defiant, triumphant figure, the one at uh, Monson Quentin. But Digger Corlette here at Bullet Corps is, he's, he's, as you say, he's, he's walking up to the front line, probably he's, you know, he's, he's in a fairly relaxed attitude. And I think it sums up how a lot of the uh, Australian visitors would like to view the Anzacs who fought here, that just laconic laid back. It, it's, it's a nice, it's a nice sculpture. It uh, it really does it, it really does paint the picture very well. And of course, the digger is facing the direction the Australian soldiers advance across those fields at Pulakor. Yeah, it's it's a great memorial to go and have a look at early in the morning as the sun rises or uh, as the sun sets because it it really it sets him off beautifully. Uh, and uh, you're absolutely right, Matt. It, I use the two statues because normally when we're doing a tour, we will go to both uh, and to show the difference of, of one that is a a very kind of almost. Uh, I always think that the uh, the digger at uh, the memorial at Mont Saint Quentin that the soldier there. Um, looks like he's just stepped out of uh, of a wardrobe. His uniform is pressed and uh, and and looks he looks very smart and uh, and uh, assured and he's he's there and thoughtful perhaps, but it but it's a uniform that's spotless. This one, the uniform looks tattered and weathered and it looks as as the soldier is wearing it. And I think that's a to me a much better memorial uh, and uh, in the sense that it gives you a much better idea of what the soldiers actually were wearing as they went into combat or came out of combat. Interestingly, the artist didn't know what flash, uh, as, as some of you will be aware, there is a flash on the, on the shoulder of every Australian soldier showing his, his division and his uh, brigade and his battalion. You can work it out by the colours. And he wanted to cover all of those that had fought during the battle. So he, has, he carries more than one flash you can see on his shoulder. I think it's a clever little touch by the artist to cover all of the men. that So he represents all of the men that fought here. Well, let's talk about the park as well, where the sculpture stands because it's right in the middle of the German lines that were captured by the Australians in both battles. This is, you are in the heart of some of the toughest fighting of both the battles of Bullecourt when you stand in this memorial park. And it's easy to forget that because it's a beautiful little grass, little beautiful commemorative park with trees all around it. It's a very nice spot to stand and see this beautiful sculpture. You are in the thick of some of the most horrific fighting of the entire battles. It's been improved recently uh, as well. Um, prior to this, it's, it, it had a kind of a cosy feel because it had hedges that went right the way around it and lots of trees. The trees are still there. But they cut back all of the plantings around the, the outside, which means that you can now see. Uh, whereas before, you were enclosed by these hedges, which, yes, it, it was actually gave you some shelter if it was a windy day or a rainy day and you could kind of gather around the, uh, the memorial itself and discuss it. Uh, now we can still do that, but we can also point out some of the features because from this location which would have been a German location, we are in the heart of the German uh, positions, you can look towards the Australian front line. And the Australian front line, we're going to talk about it here, is, is always very visual because it's an old railway embankment and, and it's got trees growing on the top of it. So almost wherever you are on this battlefield, whichever way you're walking around it, you are always aware of exactly where the Australian front line positions were because they're behind this embankment and you can see the embankment from the uh, from the Memorial Park. So it's a, it's a great sight when the, the trees were, have been cut back, it's, it's, it's helped. 
It's, uh, we should also mention that there were actually two German lines here that made up the, the Hindenburg line, and they were called OG-1 and OG-2, which was actually a holdover from the Battle of the Somme, that uh, the, the two lines at Pozier were also called OG-1 and OG-2, OG meaning Old German. Uh, so they were marked on maps as, as old trenches, old German trenches at Pozier. Uh, and so when they came to, to Bullcourt for the, a year later for the, for the battles around the Hindenburg line and saw two trenches again, uh, they named them OG-1 and OG-2 yet again. So imagine not just one German frontline trench, but two very heavily defended, uh, especially with barbed wire and machine guns, two very heavily defended frontline positions that the Australians had to take. And the Memorial Park, where it stands now, is right in between OG-1 and OG-2, uh, just outside the village. It's a, it's a really significant spot uh, for the battles. Uh, it is indeed, and uh, and I think that 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 was deliberately was picked because of uh, so it fitted nicely in the in the battle battle kind of scenario, but it also because of the view that uh, that you get. Also, what I should say, there's there's good parking, so you can park a car here quite safely for if you're heading off and doing one of these uh, one of these walks. We were talking about this before the um, before the podcast, Pete, about um, the, the just what you can discover on the battlefields of of Bulacore and. The thing that struck me the most, as well, is the, the the I found many things walking this battlefield. Probably one of the one of the battlefields where I found most artifacts that are left over from the fighting. But human remains seem to come up quite often here as well. There was just such horrendous fighting in this area that just about every time I go to the memorial park, it, it's funny people's people's reaction to human remains. If I ever come across them, usually I just bury them in the in the field. If we're talking fragmentary remains, but I don't know some people feel the need to um to do more with them, and, and often when I've come to the to the memorial park here there's been fragments of human remains actually left on the base of the sculpture which can be a bit confronting for people and it's a little bit controversial have you found human remains in this area yeah i have actually it's uh, as you say that the big problem here for those that died on the battlefield is that their bodies were very difficult to recover uh, and in fact, in, in most cases, no effort was made to to recover the bodies. Uh, some were buried by their comrades if they if they possibly could, uh, but of course they're going to be shallow burials as well, and a lot of them were disturbed. Now, having said that, after the end of the war, an awful lot were were, were recovered. There was a, a minute. Um, I knew it was probably not a good time, but this this area was walked and, and cleared quite uh, carefully. And so if there was a human remain near the surface or if there was an indication there was a body below, then those bodies would have been recovered. But not all of them here. And also, of course, horrifically, a lot of the guys were actually, their bodies were broken up on the surface by shell fire. And so uh, they, are, they were all, always fragmentary remains. I think one of the more rather disturbing aspects a few years ago, and it's probably about three or four years ago now, I was walking with a colleague of mine and we were, we do, do as we often do, uh, we, uh, I'm, a, I'm a battlefield guy, but we also, this is our, our love, our, our life and uh, our hobby. And so I was out uh, exploring the battlefield and just behind literally where we are, the Memorial Park, I found uh, a leg, um, bones only obviously, but it was still in its articulated uh, way. Uh, boot at the end of it and very obviously an, an Australian soldier from the bits of equipment that were scattered around in the area as well and it did it does suddenly bring it home to you now at that time there was nothing you could do the Commonwealth war graves would not come out to fragmentary remains to recover fragmentary remains so the only thing you can do is heal them in and that's what we did we healed the bones in covered them over um, and left feeling a little queasy a little kind of uncomfortable but that's all you could do but things have changed and the Commonwealth war graves now will accept fragmentary remains so there's an element of me that feels slightly guilty that I didn't gather him up and, and take him home but what would I have done with him you know you just can't keep him in your barn um 
but now the Commonwealth War Graves will. So if you have time to contact them, then they will come out. So, But for the average uh, visitor, then that's not going to be possible. But certainly because I live here, then I could gather them up and, and uh, they could be collected by the Commonwealth War Graves, who then have, got, have created graves for fragmentary remains. So there are multiple people in those graves, just bits that have been, of, of, of course, these are only bones that have been found. So, uh, yeah, but it's very moving when you do find something and it does suddenly, because like all of us, you walk a battlefield and it, you, you don't really get to grips with it properly, no matter how much reading and looking at photographs you do. But it is suddenly when you're confronted with something like that, then it really brings it home. We should point out as well here for people listening that um, there was almost no chance that that discovery was a complete soldier. You know, this was not a, you know, remains that could be identified or DNA testing. You know, you find all the time on the battlefields. It's horrific. I mean, it's ghastly what we're talking about. But all the time on the battlefields, you will find an arm bone or a leg bone or a, or a fragment of a soldier. It's, it's, it's awful. And it really does hit home very, very hard um, that, that this is a human story we're telling. And, and these men parts of these men as ghastly as that is to say still lie out there on the battlefields but um moving on from that yeah it's a, it's a fair warning to people if you walk the battlefields you will find human remains it's just part of the story and it's good now that commonwealth war graves are collecting them up uh where in the past they only were only concerned with whole bodies that they could potentially identify but now they're collecting fragmentary remains as well it's very good to see um also in the park we should talk about the bastion plaque because these are little things that australian visitors will see on all the key battlefields that they're, they're plaques built it's a rather unusual story, isn't it? The Bastion plaques. I like them. They're a bit, um, they're odd, I will say, but I like them. I think I think they're a good thing. And from an era when people were not doing as much to remember as they are now. So I, I don't mind the Bastion plaques. Tell us a little bit about them, Pete, and give us your opinion. Well, Dr. Ross Bastian, he's a, a dentist. In fact, if we want to be a p- pernickety, he's a periodontist. I'm not quite sure what that means, but uh, uh, that's what his, his profession is. I think he's retired now. I, I have actually met him um, on one of his uh, visits out to the battlefield, and that's, of course, how this came about. He was uh, an obsessive, you have to say. He was a reservist officer in the Australian Reserve Army, and he uh, visited the battlefields all over the world and was really fed up. You have to say that's all it was, that every time he went somewhere where Australians had fought, whether it be Vietnam, Korea or the Western Front, there was nothing to say what had gone on on that site. And so he basically, uh, off his own back, suggested to the Australian government and created one of these things. And and, and uh, I don't think he had it cast. He probably created it in uh, in plaster showed it to the Australian government and said, I think that we ought to be putting something like this on the battlefields. And that's exactly what happened. Uh, So this one was his 66th. I actually know how many that he created, but this one was his 66th plaque. And it was placed here in 1993. Things have moved on slightly. So I always, when people go and read them, and they always do, these are normally on a nice concrete plinth. So it brings it up into a height that you can read very well. Um, And... It's a, a very d- depictive because it's got uh, the battlefield in in relief cast into the into the bronze, and then there's an inscription telling you a little bit about the the battle itself. Things have moved on. 1993, we know an awful lot more about what happened, and so what you do find on many of these plaques now that the information is not current. It's not exactly what we would say about the battlefield nowadays, uh, but it's 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 certainly it's a, it was a great opening, and um, as we know, we now have a lot more uh, basically uh, information, more mainly from the Department of Veterans affairs and that's the other thing that's here on this site are two big panels uh, explaining exactly what went on here and uh, and again that was something that happened only in the last 10 years these uh, these things started appearing so the department of veteran affairs have created these uh, really good explanatory panels so we've got that on this site as well 
I like to think of the Bastion plaques as uh, as little memorials rather than they, they were put as in as information panels. But I I say to people when we're there, just think of them as little memorials to to the Australians and to this man himself who did a lot to um to make sure that they were remembered. So yeah, it's they're quirky, but uh, they're they're a, they're a, an absolute feature of Australian battlefields, as you say, all over the world now. So leaving the park, Pete, where uh, where are we heading? Well, Rue de Australia, we're going to be walking up, and so there's a, a connection straight away to Australians who fought here, heading towards the village. So we're going to walk into the village. Um, the village of Bullcourt, it's only a small village. It's about the same size, in fact, where I live in Flair. About 250-odd people live here. Populations have actually been reducing at various times in its history. It's had double the population, so over 500 people, but no more than that. So these are all small uh, northern French uh, villages, very rural. It's got a bar, which we'll discuss in a minute, uh, the town hall, the uh, um, the Marie, as they call it. In the, it's a hotel de ville in the towns. It's a Marie in the villages um, and uh, the, the church. So it's uh, it's just your typical French, small French village funny enough as i was researching just quickly looking through notes for this podcast i noticed that yes the village was destroyed the period that we're talking about in 1917 and again it was fought over in 1980 in fact it's in the front line for, for an awful lot of the war it disappeared it was utterly utterly obliterated but it wouldn't be the first time uh, the village was destroyed so i'll just read this i just just made me chuckle uh, this is history really uh, the village was destroyed in the ninth italian war in 1542 and fifth uh, between 1542 and 1546 which is when the Ninth Italian War, I'd never heard of the Ninth Italian War, I had to look it up. Um, and it was France and the Ottoman Empire against the Holy Roman Empire and Henry VIII. It's just mind-boggling, I just really find it mind-boggling. So it just shows you that warfare, this part of France, we've discussed it before, but warfare very rarely leaves this area. So the Italian War, being fought in northern France and in other places, I have to say. Uh, but it's also a very strange mix of, uh, of sides there. The Ninth Italian War was so much more interesting than the Eighth Italian War, Pete, which really didn't do much at all. Now, I, I have, I'm being facetious. I've never heard of the Ninth Italian War. Either. <laughs> Remarkable, isn't it? And especially, I, say, I've, I know I've said this many times before on the podcast, but as Australians, we just cannot get our heads around. You know, it's dramatic enough to us that we're walking this ground. There was fighting it there a hundred years ago, but to think that there's been fighting in these same corners of France. It just, you know, France and Belgium is where Europe goes to, to work out its problems, isn't it? It just, it's been fought over so much over the centuries. Having uh, not been able to tell you anything more about the Ninth Italian War, I'm sure there's somebody out there that knows all about it. We, If you uh, do, we'll, please uh, please send us a message <laughs> informing us about the Ninth Italian War. Um, so we're going to walk into the village and uh, what's very obvious is there is a church on the left-hand side as, as we walk in, the Church of St. Vlast. Um, and it's quite unusual in many ways, destroyed of course, there was nothing left at the end of the, uh, end of the First World War, but it, it is one that has a look of it of it being old. Uh, unlike my village church here in Flair and many others around here, they're built out of brick and concrete with a slightly art deco feel to them and they're very obvious that they are new churches. This one is fronted with sandstone and uh, it looks like it could have been here for hundreds of years and that's quite unusual. It's interesting that the village wanted to do that because they would have had a, uh, a, a decision uh, process that decided what should we rebuild uh, as uh, as far as our, our church is concerned and they went for an older looking one. I don't think it looked 
looks like the original, but it certainly it looks old, so it's made out of sandstone. Now, it's normally locked, and it's very attractive. It's just recently been renovated. In fact, they took an awful lot of the stone away, and you realise that it is actually beneath the stone. It is concrete and brick, but it's been fronted with this stone. It looks very attractive now. It's been uh, renovated. And I would always say pop across the road to the Marie if it's open and uh, see if you can track down the key to go and have a look inside because there are a couple of memorials to the Australians and others that uh, fought in the village. And there's a very old wreath that I think is quite, quite interesting, one of, one of the earlier wreaths from a, a, an earlier time. Uh, so, yeah, go, go and have a look inside. If, you, if it's open or if you can find the key, uh, go and have a look. Exactly opposite the church, we have the town hall, the Mary. And I would say exactly the same there. Go and have a look inside the Mary and uh, make yourself known. The, the people here, as I say, are very welcoming. And the, the town hall is very attractive on the front. It's very um, art deco with a hint of art nouveau and I think a very beautiful uh, uh, town hall. We'll go and have a look in, inside there. And there's also a painting of uh, of Major Black and it's the, the death of Major Black. And he's a character on the battlefields uh, that's... If anybody knows anything about the fighting here, and uh, remember that the tens of thousands of men that fought here, um, but he, Percy Black, is somebody that, that always features in everybody's discussion of the battlefield. Black is an interesting character. He's, a, he's probably the, the archetypal Anzac in so many ways, fought at Gallipoli, wounded on the Battle of the, wounded in the Battle of Somme, fought on it at, at, at Bullecourt, and was last seen calling his men on. As uh, One of the descriptions I read said that the as bullets, as machine gun bullets, bounced off the barbed wire like fireflies, the sparks from the bullets hitting the barbed wire, and Percy Black was at the thick of it and then killed during the battle. So again, just these iconic characters. We need, As Australians, I mean, every every nation does, but as Australians, we need these characters to tell our story, and Percy Black is certainly the one that uh, that is most commonly associated with Bullcore. Um, I think because he, he has all those attributes that we li- like to think a soldier should have, he was described as a splendid physique, quiet, un- unassuming manner, and, and, a, and a born leader. And also for those that like their men to have worked their way through the ranks, he started off as a, as a private at Gallipoli. So I think he's, I mean, Bean, Charles Bean, who's the official historian for the Australian forces during the, uh, the First World War, described him as the greatest fighting soldier in the AIF. Uh, um, so you can see that he was even even prior to his death he was uh, he was seen as, as somebody to follow somebody to aspire to and i think the loss here in what also was would be perceived by many and i think quite rightly as a as a, a pointless attack on the on the 11th of april I think that also is, is part of his story, that he died uh, in the midst of all, all of this hell, which actually didn't do anything, didn't didn't achieve anything whatsoever. I've read some fairly hideous accounts of his uh, of his death. Um, generally speaking, we just say that he was last seen leading his men and, and in the middle of the barbed wire, but I've read some really horrific uh, accounts, and I think those are... We don't tend to, to, to think about those because it, we like to think of him as, as, as leading his men as, as long as he could, and uh, he is... He is a character that I like to talk about, and generally speaking, when we're talking about his battalion, the 16th Battalion, then he will come up in the conversations. I should also mention that he was awarded the Distinguished Conduct Medal at Gallipoli. Um, as a, I think he was a maybe a sergeant by the time, by that time at Gallipoli, or Lance Corporal. But he um, he was awarded the Distinguished the DCM, which is the the second highest award that an enlisted man can receive after the Victoria Cross. So the story, I, the, I, I I'm going to write a book one day about the DCM men because these are men who just fell slightly. I won't say fell short. That seems disrespectful, but you know just 
their actions were not quite enough to, for them to get a Victoria Cross, but still bloody brave. And some of the stories of DCM men, you wonder how they didn't receive a dozen Victoria Crosses. Just incredible stories of bravery. Uh, I agree. And of course, he also received the DSO. So the, exactly the same level of award, but for an officer after he'd been commissioned and serving as a captain um, at Poissier, he was uh, also awarded the DSO. So uh, I think he's one of the, he didn't receive the Victoria Cross, but he's one of the high, most highly decorated officers of the Great War without the Victoria Cross. And uh, funny enough, his, his very good friend, Harry Murray, who he fought with uh, alongside uh, at Gallipoli, um, was awarded the Victoria Cross uh, just prior to this uh, this action. So he was awarded it just outside of my village. And they were just great friends. Uh, both had started off as privates in the 16th Battalion, had been commissioned. He was, uh, uh, Murray was commissioned into a, another battalion, but he lost his friend during this fighting and he spent a lot of time out in no man's land trying to find his body. And of course, what we should have said earlier, his his body was never found and he's actually commemorated on the, the memorial to the missing at Villas Bretonneux. Harry Murray, of course, finished the war as the most decorated Australian soldier with the Victoria Cross and a whole bunch of other. Probably, there probably wasn't one he didn't receive. He was a, a fearless man and the you know just a, a, an amazing soldier. So Harry Murray survived the war uh, and uh, ended as Australia's most decorated soldier of the First World War. So definitely go into the Murray and uh, look at the uh, that the magnificent painting to uh, Percy Black, a, a character that is not well known outside the Bull Corps battles, but really should be. But um, leaving the Murray. Pete, we are now going to visit a curious memorial, one that uh, always Australians stop and pause and, and note. It's a, it's a curious memorial. Tell us about the Slouch Hat Memorial in the middle of the village. Well, it's one of those ridiculous memorials that you just hear a lot of rubbish spoken about it because it has on the top of it, then the name says it all. There is a slouch hat on top and it's uh, a bronze slouch hat. And the number of people that I've heard say, oh, yeah, Pete, that's uh, encasing an, an original uh, uh, slouch hat from the from the period. And of course it's not. You know, it's very difficult to encase something that would catch fire with something that's molten metal. It, it, it doesn't. Um, but it is a... It Can is, I, I, I have to make a confession at this point, Pete, that in the first edition of my book, Walking with the Anzacs, I repeated the story that it was a, an original piece of kit. And then soon after, I thought, that's just, you know, it had been told to me. I think the people in the village say that as well, that, you know. And so, um, you know, you hear these things and you go, wow, what an amazing story I put in my book. And then, you know, minutes after the book appeared, I thought, that is just ludicrous. How would you dip a felt hat in molten metal? <laughs> <laughs> and, it, and it's massively oversized as well. It would be the largest slouch hat you've ever seen because the slouch hat of the memorial is huge. So, uh, yeah, yeah, we need, we need these little apocryphal tales to, to keep the story interesting, don't we? But no, it's, it's, not, it's not a real slouch hat covered in bronze. Um, but no, it is still a magnificent memorial. It is, and, and the, I think the bit that I like about it, because Australians, I have to say, are not, are not always the best at coming forward and commemorating uh, British units as well. So this is an Australian memorial, the Slouch Hat Memorial, but it actually lists everybody that fought there, and, and very depictively, because it shows the divisional badges. So it's, it has the 58th, 62nd and 7th British divisions that fought here during the First and Second uh, uh, Battles of Bulcor, and then it also shows the 1st, 2nd, 4th and 5th, because effectively... Every Australian division that was on the Western Front at that time, the third was not. The third was still being raised in Britain and trained and ready to come out here. In fact, it was almost ready, but it uh, it, it is not yet capable of fighting. So, first, second, fourth, and fifth Australian divisions all fought here at uh, at Bulcor. So it's a great memorial. It's one uh, it's one that's worthwhile stopping at, and it's also a good place to park. So if you are actually driving the battlefield, there is this is a secondary parking location opposite the Murray. There's a parking area there. 
And what's also interesting, there is another memorial just around the corner and one that surprises a lot of people because of the the Australian experience with tanks. There is a memorial to D Battalion of the Heavy Branch Machine Gun Corps. Now, the Heavy Branch Machine Gun Corps is what will eventually become the Tank Corps. But at at this period, it still hasn't got that name. It's known as the Heavy Branch Machine Gun Corps. And D Battalion is commemorated here. That's the battalion that fought with the Australians during the the First Battle of of Bull Corps. And there's a section of of actual original tank track in front of it, which is always uh, always interesting, interests people to actually uh, touch and see something that uh, has been recovered uh, from the the battlefield i just wanted to jump in there mate and say i like that you call this a memorial because it is now there's a sign talking about the tanks and stuff for a very long time all there was <laughs> i described in my book as a section of tank track rather unceremoniously dumped next to the slash at memorial for a long time all it was was just a piece of tank track just sort of lying there in the grass next to the slash hat memorial and in many ways, I think that was an interesting metaphor. No disrespect to the tank crews who did their absolute best at Bullock Corps, but the tanks, because of the technology and it was so new and the way they were employed, they were just a disaster during the first battle. And in an effort to experiment a bit with the tanks, they had determined that they wouldn't do a, an artillery barrage to support the troops. They would just use the tanks. The tanks didn't work at all, so the Aussie troops were really left on their own uh, during the first battle. And so the, 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 the appalling results from those tanks and the huge you know, casualty rates that occurred because of the failure of the tanks. It was always quite fitting to me that the only mention of the tanks has got this bit of tank track rather unceremoniously just lying there in the grass. But the but quite fairly now they have they have turned into a bit more of a memorial. So uh, so you can uh, you can uh, go and see that memorial and and pay your respects to the tank crews, many of whom were killed in the first battle of Bullocor. Also, just as a side note, um, probably a year or so ago now on my other podcast channel, Living History, I did an interview with Richard Osgood, an archaeologist who had, in recent years, they've completed an archaeological excavation of one of the tanks that still remained on the Bullocor battlefield. So this tank was knocked out during the battle and it was then occupied and used as a headquarters. The Germans then took it over in 1918 and after the war, to get rid of it, they simply rolled it into a shell hole and buried it. Uh, and so a, a couple of years ago, he and a team of archaeologists excavated that tank and that was quite a remarkable story so go and check that out look up living history on uh, your favorite podcast app and look up the uh, the tanks of bullocor and uh, that uh, incredible excavation of the tank but um carry on pete what were we going to say about tanks what I was going to say is uh, you actually kind of beat me to it because I was actually going to mention that archaeological dig as well. And in fact, I'm just going to read uh, fragments from an account of an Australian soldier um, who uh, fought in the First Battle of Bullcourt. And the reason why I've got these uh, this account is because it's from one of the guys that was actually working on that uh, on that dig. And this account was really uh, discovered as part of trying to identify the tank that they were working on. Um, and so I'm going to re- read a little bit of it. But before I do, I just one of the things I think I need to add is I found one of the more exasperating aspects of this battle are the fact that the tanks were Mark II tanks, which were training tanks uh, that they, they're using here, and they could not stop uh, bullets that uh, had an armoured-piercing uh, capability, and they particularly weren't particularly good at stopping any kind of bullets if it, if it was very close. So I think it's just extraordinary that these tanks... It was, that's why it was cobbled together. This aspect of using the tanks instead of a barrage was cobbled together in the in the days before the attack took place. So it's... Uh, it's yeah, the tank crews were as much in the dark as the infantry... Because, of course, all of the infantrymen, uh, the Australian infantrymen that fought alongside these tanks or with these tanks during the battle had never worked with tanks before. 
And so they had no idea what they were supposed to do. I've just scribbled down a couple of, of timings, which gives you an idea. The tanks were due to attack at 4.30 and the infantry at 4.45. And what became immediately obvious to those few tanks that even got there for 4.30 is that there is no way they were going to get near to the German wire before the infantry did. In other words, the infantry were going to overtake them. So the planning just collapsed completely. So even those tanks that were there at the right time were no good because the infantry had to move quicker than that. And so effectively the infantry got in front of the tanks and the tanks w could not fire safely without hitting Australian uh, Australian men. So, yeah, terrible time. So I'm just going to read a, a couple of excerpts from Private Angus Duncan McCallum, number 6303 of D Company, the 16th Battalion. Um, and uh, he wrote this after the battle, this letter to his uh, to his brother. In fact, I think it's on his. He either wrote it when he was a prisoner of war because he's one of those. I think it's the figure is. I think it's one thousand one hundred and seventy. Does that sound right, Matt? The number of Australians uh, that were that were captured. Um, he is one of those men that was captured during uh, during the battle. So we'll just read a few excerpts um, from a long letter to his brother explaining what had happened to him. The tanks were to go first and mow down the wire. And that's what they were designed to do, was to roll over the wire and open it up for the infantry to get uh, through to the, towards the German trenches. It was to send up a green light and then where we were to charge. In other words, when it had crushed the wire and got to the trenches, then they would be indicated when they were to charge. What happened was this. The tanks went ahead all right, but they kicked up more row than a steamroller and the Germans saw them and began to shell them. Um, so he, he sets off. Uh, he realises that he's, he's going to overtake the tank, so that's a, a problem. Um, but even before he set off, a shell landed and killed two men who were with him, two brothers. And I found that very moving, that uh, uh, both of these brothers uh, were killed. And he writes that between these two brothers, they had seven youngsters uh, between them. Um, and they were both uh, married men, uh, George and Sam Buckingham, uh, from East Perth. And that's just a terrible aspect when you start thinking about, we talk about death and we talk about these die, guys dying these are two brothers killed by the same shell and seven children uh, between them that are going to lose their their fathers and they're both missing they are on the vb memorial to the missing the result was we passed the tanks before or the tank before it had reached the barbed wire and it was unable to use its guns as we were in front of it we could see the sparks flying off the wire in front and the bullets cracking like whips, stop whips around our ears. A sergeant fell right in front of me. I went to him, but he told me to go on. I went on till I reached the wire and, and what wire it was. A mass of 10 yards wide. So he's got to cross that. It's uncut. There's no way of getting uh, through it. I used the butt of my rifle to hold the wire down and walked across from post to post and got over without a scratch. The bullets were still whistling all around me. I could feel them hitting the wire while I was walking over it. I could see the boys falling all around. One by one, they would go down with just a groan. Once they fell on the wire, there was no getting off. They kept the machine guns on the wire and it was getting black with our brave wounded boys and the groans and cries began to get louder and louder. So he gets through. He eventually uh, gets into the OG-1. We'd been in the trench about an hour and it was broad daylight when along came one of our tanks and stopped right over the top of the trench. So this is one of the tanks that's broken through and this is why that letter became important to those archaeologists trying to find which tank it was they were uh, uh, excavating. Um, 
I could see the bullets bouncing off it like hailstones and they began to, and then they began to shell it. I saw a shell hit it and it stood up right on end. So that would be the end of, uh, of that tank. Um, he at, the, at that point was then wounded in the knee. Now, this is his colleagues. They told me and I went all the colours of the Union Jack. So they took me down to a dugout where the wounded German uh, was. He'd actually thrown a grenade into one of the dugouts and, and killed and wounded one German who was still there. As the shells were beginning to arrive by the score and the trench was getting blown about a bit, the boys had gone on to the second trench. So this is them attempting to get to OG2. And they were getting pushed back and the dugout was all full of wounded. Then the boys began to gather up the wounded and the men's ammunition. And in fact, what they're preparing to do is abandon the, the trench. And, and sadly, one of these wounded guys shouts up, are you going to leave us? And there's no answer. And the answer is obviously, yes, they, they are. There is no way that they're going to be able to get these guys out of this out of this trench. Um this is the saving grace, and this is what saves his life. The boys of the 14th Battalion who were with us dragged the wounded German up to the mouth of the dugout and made him yell to his mates when they saw him. They told them we were all wounded and were good comrades, and, and that saved our bacon. So that's how he survives and, and became, becomes a prisoner of war because the German that was with them as their prisoner actually shouts up to the Germans as they retake the trench, and so a grenade is not thrown in it to, uh, to finish them all off. Uh, it's, a, it's a fantastic letter. If you get an opportunity to, uh, to, to track it down, then, then do. It's from the Army Museum of Western Australia, and in fact I must uh, uh, thank uh, Mike Bennett, uh, that, who uh, actually pointed out to me, uh, and Peter Perves, who's the volunteer, here at the uh, at the museum of uh, the Army Museum of Western Australia, I should point out an error that I made earlier on, and too, Peter, I was talking about uh, the when you mentioned the uh, prisoners there. I was pointing out the prisoners uh, at Fromel as well, and saying Fromel was the uh, largest number of wounded uh, of prisoners. Of course, that's not the case. The highest number of Australians taken prisoner in a single action during the war was here at Bullacore, the eleven hundred, as you mentioned. The numbers yep. at Fromel were something like only about four hundred. So Fromel and Bullacore are the two actions where the most Australians were captured, but Bullacore. Number one, the more Australians captured at Bullacore than anywhere else during the war. In fact, one third of all the prisoners taken, more than a third of all the prisoners taken during the entire war, were captured during the first Battle of Bullacore in April 1917. And not treated too well. Uh, it's a whole story in its own right about the the taking of the of the prisoners. But uh, yeah, the Germans were cock a hoop of capturing so many of what they perceived were these these Australians that had come to the Western Front to to show what they could do. And uh, yeah, and they had a fairly a fairly rough time. And you'll read over and over again in their accounts of being knocked about, even if they were wounded by uh, by the uh, the uh, their captors. So where are we heading next uh, as we uh, as we continue our walk, Pete? We're going to the bar. So uh, just a little bit further along the I road. Like the on, sound of that. on the right-hand <laughs> side, uh, uh, the uh, uh, La Cambra, the bar. So uh, and obviously Australian uh, uh, bent to it as well. Um, it's a, it's a yeah, absolutely archetypical French bar. And thankfully it's still there because an awful lot of, have gone in recent years. Um, the, uh, the woman that, uh, that runs it uh, smokes like a, a chimney. Um, and so it's always smoky in there, uh, even though there is a, a smoking ban in France. It doesn't appear to have reached rural France. And so I always have to warn my clients uh, that you better get used to it just for a little while. Again, remember what it used to be like. Um, and you can get a great cup of coffee there. Don't, they don't do food, but you can get a good cup of coffee and, uh, and a beer if you, if you want it. I have been known on, uh, on a couple of private battlefield visits that we went, that we go there for, uh, for, for around about lunchtime. And sometimes that's where the, the tour finishes because we don't manage to leave. Um, so it's, uh, it's a great little, little watering hole. Well worth, uh, well worth going to. It certainly is. I've been there for many, a cleansing ale myself after a long walk around the battlefields. 
yeah, it's good. It's good. So we're going to leave there. And uh, uh, just should point out one of the great things about it. It's very often open because uh, you're a bit hit and miss with us with their bars in rural France. You never quite know whether they're going to be open or not. But this one tends to be open, which is good news. So we're now going to go to the fully revamped um, and relaunched museum in the village. And it's one that I very rarely, when I'm touring, have time to get to. But it's called, the full title is The Bulco 197, Jean and Denise. Now, this name always struggle. Letail, is that how you pronounced it, Matt? I think Letail I would Museum. say Letail, yeah. But uh, who, know, who knows? Indeed. Um, and even though I knew him, I never really quite got the hang of his, his second name. So I just knew him as, as, as John. Um, and um, it used to be, it's in the same location as where his house used to be. His house was sold, but he had a barn and a stable uh, in the courtyard of his house. And that's where his museum was. And his museum was truly fantastic. And the welcome you got from him was truly fantastic. He'd always involved wine in his house where he, he, he would invite you in. He then would guide you around his museum, which was heaps of everything you could possibly think of that could be recovered from the battlefield and in fact the larger lump of a tank was also in his uh, in his little uh, museum if i'm fairly certain that when he was the mayor he must have had a decree that was uh, that went out that if you were a farmer in the area and you found anything then it had to go to his collection because it's a it's a stunning collection and still is one of the great things i used to love just looking at was some work had been done, and this shows you how the village was interested. Some work had been done on listing every single Australian that had been killed during the battle, or the two battles. And he kept an archive of that. And if you were an Australian relative visiting the battlefield and your relative had been killed during the battle, he would tick off this list. So you could go through this list and you could see how many Australian relatives had visited on behalf of men who'd been lost there. I just used to love and uh, enjoy just turning the pages and seeing those those tick marks and the dates and who, who and he added this and who it was that had, uh, had visited. So he was a very, very interesting man and, uh, and sadly missed. But thankfully, just before his demise... Um, there was basically everybody became concerned. What was going to happen to his? He, he was unwell. He had actually had a terminal disease. What was going to happen to his collection? And thankfully, everybody got together, including the Australian uh, government and the local commune, and then the the regional commune and the French government as well. And everybody got together and put put some money together. And in fact, again, in in researching for this podcast, I often wondered how much. It's nine hundred thousand euros were raised to build the museum that uh, now houses his collection and it's it's good but if you remember these great piles of things that he uh, that he used to have then i just loved just just that aspect of it that it was a very ad hoc but now it's all labeled up and in fact uh, the dva department of veteran affairs was very much involved in the planning of this museum and, and the layout and how it should look it's interesting isn't it pete i was fortunate to arrive on the battlefields that my first visits were right at the end of that era which you would say was the enthusiasts era where the battlefields were run and visited by people who were just very enthusiastic about the subject. And the, 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 the museums were all very, very amateurish, but very interesting. And then I think, you know, my, my first visits were in the early 2000s. It was soon after that that it started to change and that the, the more and more visitors started coming and that they realised that the, it was not sustainable, it was not safe in a lot of instances. So they started building more of these things but I'm, I'm the same I, 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 I only visited it once before it became this brand new museum and I met him once sadly but it was amazing I remember going in him as I, as you said going in and sh- him showing me around <laughs> my French was terrible but 
we did our best and you know we and just the all the bits and pieces and and the other one I remember is the Fromel Museum at the, in the village of Fromel. There's a lot of parallels between Fromel and Bulacor in terms of the village maintaining remembrance. And the, the Fromel Museum used to be the most extraordinary thing. It was in the town hall. It wasn't open and it used to just turn up at the town hall and, and uh, they'd say, uh, you know, when I first went there in about 2002, I, I turned up and they were like, oh, are you Australian? And they were quite surprised to actually have an Australian visitor. And they not only unlocked the museum for me, but they then called a local historian to come down and show me through the museum. And he turned up still with his napkin tucked into his shirt from where he'd been having his lunch. And, um, you know, and, and, and we walked around basically just a collection of stuff collected from the battlefields. And today, those days are really gone. There are still very interesting museums, but now they're very official. They're, they're all, there's all display cases and audiovisual presentations and... And you don't you don't feel like you're interacting with the exhibitions the same way that you did in these old barn collections that you used to see in the old days. I'm lamenting a little bit. I'm showing my age and lamenting the past, like we all do when we reach a certain age. But it was a very different time to visit the battlefields, be walked around, and to be a bit of a novelty. An Australian walking the battlefields was quite a novelty for the local French people. It was just a wonderful time. I'm glad I got to experience it. I think it's one of the interesting issues of the the creation of the the Australian uh, trail that that uh, crisscrosses the battlefield, is that money was spent to create that trail. It wasn't just a, a notional of creating the trail and that there's a, a website to go with it and uh, the, the, there's there's brochures and things you can download. But it was also that all the museums along that trail, including the the one at Fromel and uh, the one at Villas Bretonneau and this one at Bulcor, all had Australian money pumped into them to to give that connection. And I think there's an aspect of that that, that actually I didn't like is that they all then feel slightly similar uh, because it is to give you that continuity of, of going from museum and battlefield and museum and battlefield. Um, whether you think that's a good thing or not, then it's a good thing because things are certainly preserved on a lot more of a pro- professional uh, manner. So we get, we get proper archiving and professional uh, pr- preservation. But it, all, it does lead to them all feeling a little similar, a little similar. I certainly agree with that. And, and as I said, you feel less connected with the... I mean, you were certainly very connected with the displays in Jean's museum in Bulacor where you could come in and handle anything you wanted to and pick up shells and, and, uh, and do anything you wanted to do. So uh, it certainly has changed from those days. Not necessarily all deactivated as well, which obviously just give you a little bit of an, an extra thrill. And in fact, I'll just tell a, a, a sorry, Matt. I'll just tell a final story before we move on. That the last time I saw John was about a month before his his death, sadly, and he was out in a field with a shovel and a, and a mate of equal age as him. And he was, I mean, they were in their late eighties, basically shoveling out a fourteen inch shell that had been found at the site. And a fourteen inch shell is huge. It's about the size of uh, of your average man. It is just enormous. And there they are with two shovels digging this thing out. And what became very obvious, there was another one beneath it. And what concerned myself and the colleague was they kept banging it with their shovels as they were digging it out. And in fact, I said to my colleague, I'm really feeling uncomfortable about standing here because if this goes off, they will never know what happened to us. They will just never know where we went. Uh, and so we left them to it. And that was that's my last memory of, of Jean was digging out this uh, this this shell uh, about a month before sadly he died he certainly was an extraordinary man and it's worth it when you go to Bullcourt to pay your respects to him by visiting what is now a, a fascinating and very well done museum it is and and i think it's a great shame that an awful lot of people who are touring the battlefield don't have the time to stop and spend uh, an hour or so there because it is it is a very good museum and it, it and it and it really is a great collection uh, and still is
Well, we're going to leave the village behind us now, Pete, and actually walk out into the killing fields of Bullcore. This is why we're here. We should remember our British comrades who fought through the village and captured the village uh, during the uh, during the second battle. Uh, it was the British that actually fought house to house and took the, the ruins of the village. But we're going to now walk out into the battlefields and, uh, and, and, and cross the ground covered by the Australians. Just before we do, I think I added this into the notes, Matt. I know you get a copy of my notes as we, di- we discuss these, but the water tower. I'm just going to quickly mention the water tower because France has a great habit, uh, especially uh, memorialising these water towers, which are, are in every little village has a, a water tower. And very often they're painted up with uh, uh, murals of what uh, what uh, is remembered. And it's normally farming. But in this case, uh, they have uh, the Royal Coat of Arms for uh, for Britain and the, the badge of the, the AIF side by side. And it was even updated because it commemorates the centenary of the fighting uh, within the village. And prior to that, it had a, a commemoration of the 90th uh, anniversaries that took place uh, in the village. And it's uh, always kept very, uh, very well painted and it stands out. And for those that are travelling from Bapum towards the village, then that's the first thing you will see as you come into the uh, village. So we've walked right the way through the village. But uh, as Matt said, we're just going to backtrack a little bit and we're going to go down uh, a road called, now oh, this is another one, Ruda. Giant, I think you pronounce it, but don't quote me on that. Um, Rue de Giant, which is a village, it's a nearby village, so this is a road that once went there. It's only a little track, and in fact, it's uh, not to be recommended for your large coaches, but a light minibus and a car, they can normally uh, get that, uh, travel along it. And this will basically take us right into the heart of the battlefield. It's a fascinating spot. This is... As I said, Bulacore is one of those battlefields where you can just you can really feel like you're walking with a ghost of history. And going down this this sunken lane out into the middle of the, the fields, you are right in the heart of where the Australians attacked in both battles, and it's it's extraordinary to, to, to just to whenever I go down there, whether it's with a coach or or just to, just on my own, you always stop in the middle of this sunken road just and, and just look around and just just try and imagine what went on around you. Just an extraordinary place. Um, it is indeed, and and I think the great thing about it, as you walk along it, and I walked this route uh, only a couple of months ago. It's one that I regularly have a walk because it's just because it's a great, it's a great walk, and it's so easy. And you are on a paved surface or an almost paved surface. There are a couple of spots where it's not not quite so good, um, and so it means that uh, you can stop, you can look around, and to our right, we'll see that. Uh, ver- and this is one of the most obvious aspects of the whole of this battlefield is this railway line which is on an embankment for most of its length that the Australians uh, were fighting from behind because they are going to be behind it for the start of the attack and so you can see this embankment it's on our right hand side and it's got trees on the top of it so it stands out wherever wherever you are you can be a couple of oh no five six seven kilometers away and you can still see the trees on top of the embankment so you always know where the Australian front line is so now we are we are walking down in the middle Middle of the battlefield and in fact this sunken road it's slightly sunken in several bits that we're walking along some of the Australian units during this attack actually moved out from behind the railway line into this sunken road so there are some parts of this it actually really is front line for the Australian attack on the 11th but but the most important feature for the whole of the battlefield and you can then orientate yourself from it is this railway line on our right hand side now it's not a full size railway line of the modern railway something that we would expect to see a full size train it's from a, a light railway network that crisscrossed the whole of France known as the chemin de fer the iron road and so that gives you a bit of a clue this is this is the iron road it's before roads were everywhere when the roads were still difficult when trains first came in, light tr- railway lines crisscross uh, rural France and they were for moving produce to market effectively. 
And so this is this is one of those. It's a light railway line that crossed right away across the battlefield. So a couple of interesting things to say about this area. Pete, if you uh, look at photos of the Battle of Bullcourt, a lot of them are taken along the railway embankment. So if you go to the Australian War Memorial website and type in the word Bullcourt and embankment, you will see lots of photos of this railway embankment. So basically, in an otherwise featureless open battlefield, this was a place that obviously provided cover for headquarter units, for troops to assemble, for supply dumps. And I've got to say, in a couple of places, when you walk along this sunken road, you can duck down and have a look at the embankment. Um, and certainly do that. Go and walk along the embankment if you can, if the weather's okay and it's not too muddy. Go and have a walk along the embankment because I don't think I've walked along there where I haven't found artifacts from the battle. I found an entire coil of barbed wire there once, which has obviously been dumped there in 1917 and still remained there uh, nearly a century later. You can still see the remains of dugouts. I found the sole of an Australian shoe there on the bank once. You usually find cartridge cases. There's just a lot of stuff left over. It just shows the number of men who sheltered behind that embankment. It's a central feature of the battlefield. All the Australians who were there talked about sheltering behind the embankment. Uh, And the sunken road that we're walking down as well, we should point out, that was first um, reconnoitred by um, Albert Jacker, who was the man who had won the first Victoria Cross uh, to Australia during the First World War at Gallipoli, uh, had then won the Military Cross at Pozieres, and then he actually went out and, uh, and, and, and examined and discovered this sunken road and discovered it was not occupied by the Germans. Uh, and in the course of that, also captured a German officer and, and for his efforts at Bullet Corps during the Second Battle, received a, a bar to his military cross, so a second military cross, effectively. And so, um, yeah, so again, the character of Albert Jacker, who pops up throughout our history of the First World War, uh, and gets told again here at, uh, at Bullet Corps, another of his famous actions. I think it's interesting, isn't it, uh, um, Captain Black and, and Jacka, both uh, characters that are, are are well remembered, but Jacka mainly because he was written about and wrote about about his experiences. So he is remembered an awful lot more and, of course, was awarded the Victoria Cross. Um, uh, but both on this battlefield, I think I think find it fascinating that they were both on the battlefield uh, together. We'll uh, talk more about Jacka when we uh, do our Pozier walk, which I'm looking forward to. That will be one of our most uh, significant walks. And when we walk the battlefield of Pozier, we'll talk about the action for which many people receive, feel he should have received a second Victoria Cross. But we'll come back to him later. But just note as you're walking along the sunken road that uh, a lot of the, uh, the, the reason it was used by the troops and a lot of lives were saved by the good work of Albert Jacka in this area. Where to next, Pete? Well, we're going to carry on uh, along this uh, this sunken road until it becomes not so sunken and it becomes a very flatter area. Um, so to our right, we've still got the railway line. We can see it on the right-hand side. But if we look left, then what becomes very, very obvious is we are in a valley. Uh, it's actually a re-entrance, a military term, well, like a geographic term. It's a re-entrance and, and it's slightly rising. So we are looking at it as it slightly rises, but not a, not a great deal. Um, now, this is one of the more difficult aspects. You think, oh, valley, that's handy. Well, it is and it isn't. For some of those that were in the, in the centre of the valley and up against the banks, perhaps it gave them a, a, a limited protection. But the issue is going to be is as we then attack the German front lines, OG1 and OG2, we get Germans on our left and right. So the Germans in those trenches around the village are on our left-hand side. And then on the, the right-hand side, we have a, a, a series of, uh, of trenches, the, perhaps the most important, called Balcony Trench, which is part of a very strong defensive line, almost as strong as the Hindenburg Line. Um, the Germans uh, call it the Wotan Line, and that is on our right-hand side. So that means as we pushed up towards the German front lines, OG1, OG2, battling our way through the barbed wire, we are then starting to take a flanking fire, fire coming from both sides. And this will be the biggest issue for those men that were in this landscape, Is is it becomes... 
Well, I've heard it described very often as the like the charge of the light brigade on foot, where they have guns firing to the left and to the right, and obviously in in front of them. But it's a very very different battle to the charge of the light brigade, um, which kept which uh, took place in the Crimean War. Um, but here we have uh, we have this is the big difficulty: this enormous amount of barbed wire, and what you have to remember here as well. And again, if we look up the valley, you you can actually start to think about what was in front of us. It's very visual again. The barbed wire wasn't cut, and this is the problem. The barbed wire is not going to be cut, so these guys, as in that account we just read, are having to try and get through this uh, this barbed wire. So what we're going to do is we are going to turn left um, up one of these roads that was there at the time and is marked on all the, uh, the, trench, uh, the trench maps. It's called Central Road. There's a bit of a clue there. It's fairly much central of the Australian push, and uh, we're going to walk up Central Road. That point you made, Pete, is, uh, is, is really important, and it's important we don't underestimate how the layout of the battlefields affected the ability of men to attack there. So um, I used to think this as well. When I used to visit the battlefields in my early days as a young man, I used to picture two trench lines as basically straight lines facing each other, and then therefore as you walked ahead, you were getting fire from the enemy directly in front of you. But it didn't take long to realise that the, the Western Front is, was absolutely not like that. It curved back on itself. It bent around. Sometimes it faced east if you're in the Allied position. Sometimes it faced north. Sometimes it, it bent in every possible direction. And it, it was such a long and curving line that at any one specific point on it, if you tried to move into no man's land, fire could come at you virtually from any direction. Really really only behind you was the, 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 the one area where you knew you weren't going to get fire from. But it could come from any direction. And we should always remember that, that the... the Soldiers learnt very early on that firing along no man's land rather than across it was was much more was a much more effective way of stopping an enemy troop. So if you if you picture nothing else, picture soldiers trying to get across no man's land and as Pete said, getting fire coming in from the sides. This is what was most deadly and uh, and what caused the most casualties. It's known in military terms as enfilade fire, fire that comes from uh, from the your sides, and it, it is the most deadly because it's cutting across a line of men. It can take out a whole line of men rather than firing from the direct front, which will only take out the men that it's uh, kind of firing at directly. Uh, enfilade fire is is much more dangerous, and very often on fixed positions. In other words, you walk into the bullets. The bullets don't chase you down. You actually, in trying to advance, walk into uh, into that fire. If we raise our eyes, uh, our eyes, we're going to now start walking uh, along uh, this road, Central Road. And if you raise uh, your eyes, two things of interest. You'll see what the final objective would have uh, been for the Australians if they'd got through OG1 and OG2, and that is Riancourt, uh, the, next, uh, the next village. It was never taken. Um, and so we can, we can see that objective in front of us. It's about uh, 1.3 kilometres from where we are now at the start of the, uh, the attack. Um, and 160 metres in front of us, we get OG1. So that's, uh, that, that's how far we're going to walk before we start crossing those, those lines. Now, there's nothing there. There is nothing to indicate that the trenches are there. They've all gone. The concrete shelters uh, that were there, they've been uh, removed from here. Now, some parts of the Hindenburg line, we still get them. We can still see concrete blockhouses and shelters and positions. But here, there's nothing here. There's no concrete here on this uh, this section of the battlefield. Um, it was mainly. I don't think there. Were, I don't think there actually was a lot of concrete. I think it was a lot of sandbag positions here, um, and lots and lots of barbed wire. What's handy for us, there are a couple of trees on the right-hand side. One's actually an apple tree, um, and that apple tree is about a hundred meters 
um, behind the front line. So you've uh, when you get to that apple tree, you've crossed over both OG1 and, and OG2. Interestingly, I'm trying to grow an apple tree from pips from that tree. I just thought it was, I don't know why I do these things, but I just felt it was an interesting thing to try and grow a, a tree in my garden from, uh, from uh, one of the pips, one of the apples uh, that I picked up this year. Um, so that's where we're heading. We're going to walk across OG1 and OG2 and always stop and have a look when you, when you, uh, if you've got the right maps and you can work it out and you can look left and right and see the real difficulty of the Germans firing from your frank flanks and where the, uh, the frontline trenches uh, of the Hindenburg line uh, went. It's uh, chilling. I have to say quite chilling to be standing there. You've always got on your left as well, Pete, the uh, Memorial Park, of course, which if you're getting lost and confused about where you're heading is, um, marks the, the it's in between the two german trenches so it marks where, where the australians eventually ended up but uh, obviously only the australians directly in front of it ended up on that spot but it still marks the the line and uh, the the memorial park stands out it's it's really a it's a it's a sobering walk up central road when you just picture that on literally on both sides of you thousands and thousands of men were being mown down by machine gun fire and artillery in the in the the early you know in the night time then in the dawn light i mean Pete, as a, you're, you're one of the best battlefield historians I know. How do you bring this experience to life for visitors as they walk this ground? How do you in some way give them a sense of what went on on the ground around them? Well, I think to a certain extent, you do what we're doing now. You try and describe uh, what was there. But what I quite often do is get people just to stop and to just listen and to to imagine what it was like and sometimes almost close your eyes and just imagine what it was like i think you know you need to do that you need to stop talking sometimes i, I have a terrible habit of over talking it's something that you do there's all this information you want to get it out to your to your clients but i think sometimes you've just got to stop you've got to tell a story and you've got to stand there and actually when you do that it's it's it is becomes very emotional for a lot of people if you give them time to have a little think um, I see people sometimes touching the ground. I see people picking up lumps of soil. I see people, obviously, there are relics, there are shrapnel balls, those lead balls that uh, kill so many people. They're all over the place. You can pick down and hold one in your hand and just rub it, and it takes you there, and I think that's the key. And I very often get people getting quite upset at, uh, at these points, but it's something you need to do. You know when you, you need to know when to stop talking, and to, which is difficult for myself, and to, to give, give people time to think about what went on in these locations. You're so right, mate, and the thing we should remember as well is how many of those men are still there just beneath our feet when we walk across these battlefields. Bulkor is a place that keeps giving up bodies just time and time again. There was one famously in the 90s. Uh, he was identified, was found and identified right in the middle of the field where we're walking now. Um, even recently when I talked about the embankment, it was only a couple of years ago they found, I think they found two Australian bodies um, in the railway embankment. So Bulkor is a place that, uh, that, that keeps giving up its lost soldiers and, and will for many years to come. So always remember that on all of these battlefields. Just, just remember that you are, walking with, uh, you, know, you are walking above so many of the men that are still there. We're very close to where the last soldier, the last soldier, I think, I think it was 2016, but don't quote me on that. But I've got a feeling the last soldier was 2016 and he was found very close to the apple tree that, uh, that, that I just pointed out and that we, we are just about to pass. So, uh, yeah, so absolutely right. The, the, the guys, thankfully, they're still found and occasionally identified. Um, but uh, the last one that I'm aware of was, was not identified. He's, uh, he's buried in, in Guyant Road Cemetery, which is the nearest open uh, Commonwealth Wargrave Cemetery that still takes uh, uh, soldiers. It's a concentration cemetery, and he was buried there. As we keep going up Central Road, Pete, we, as you say, we've crossed the line of the German trenches, so now we are in the thick of that fighting as the Germans are pouring into the lines, their famous counterattacks. But we come to a, a crossroads, which is a little bit of an unusual spot. It's it's not as 
as um, obvious as it is on trench maps because in trench maps you had five or six roads that all converged here together and today farmers have changed them and the, 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 the paved highway now runs a little bit of a different direction. But it's still a, a prominent spot on the battlefield, isn't it, that very few Australians reach during the fighting? Yeah, it's known as uh, the six uh, crossroads or the six crossroads. Um, now there aren't six uh, roads uh, joining at this point, but presumably at one time there would have been. Um, it's uh, it's back onto the road which we're going to turn left here, which will take us back to the Bullcore Digger. So we're doing this. It's almost a, a square. We're, we're we're doing a complete square, uh, but it's a spot that when I'm coming from the other direction. So if I'm coming from the Aris direction, I often stop the coach here because it's an you're you're at the start of the of this valley that you get a good view up to the Australian front line, and it's a, a really good place to get a feel. Of, of that distance that the Australians were trying to to take. And in fact, they do take. They will eventually get here in the second Battle of Bulk, or they will actually uh, take here. I, I actually may have said the, f- the fifth, it's the third, uh, uh, the day that the uh, the second battle starts. I think I said the fifth uh, of May. It's the third of May. Um, and uh, so it's another good place just to stand and think because this is where they were trying to get to. We're very close to the, to the, the village, the, uh, the object, object uh, of Riencourt. Uh, which is what they were hoping to get to the Australians, and uh, it's a it's a it's a really good place just to have a think, and another place that is just the number of relics and and things in the fields around this area, uh, and the reason is because this will be fought over because the the, the attack is eventually a success. That means it's then going to be shelled constantly by the Germans and eventually the Germans will force uh, the soldiers from this area out of these trenches and force them all the way back onto the Somme again. So it's a, it's an area that's constantly been fought over. So the number of relics and the things in the fields is just extraordinary. I have to say at this point, be very careful around here. Awful lot of gas used in this area. And in fact, a couple of years ago, exactly on this point, there was a complete a gas shell one of those fired from a livens projector which f- fires a basically it's a it's a, a cylinder of gas into the german trenches and there was a complete one still full uh, at the side of the road here i haven't got one of those in my collection <laughs> <laughs> sound advice pete it's um it, it is a as you say it's a very heavily fought over battlefield i found as i said i found the sole of an australian boot i found a coin a uh, three threepence or a, a, an old coin from 1911 I found right near the uh, German lines which obviously fell out of the pocket of an Australian soldier so just remarkable but when I'm when I stand at six crossroads I think of a, I think of a small group under Captain Gordon Maxfield who fought here during the second battle so they fought here on the evening of the 3rd of May 1917 and this was an incredibly exposed position the Australians did a very good job getting this far forward because it's a long way um, behind the lines towards Riencourt they got to this position, he he wrote several messages back to his commanding officer saying we're holding a forward line at six crossroads, um, and then uh, the the reports just are that they saw a large German force assembling for an, for a counterattack. That force swept forward, and Maxfield and his men were never seen again. They they just simply disappeared into the night, and so they were not captured. They were obviously killed uh, right at this spot at six crossroads, and presumably the Germans buried them um, nearby. Uh, and I assume that their remains would have been found after the war and they would now lie as unknown soldiers in uh, in one of those large cemeteries. Or there's a small chance they're still here somewhere. But I always think of Maxfield and his men and just the, 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 the terrifying end that would have been as, as, the, as the Germans surrounded them and then uh, yeah. overwhelmed them. Yeah, and again, sometimes you you can't think about it too deeply because it does become distressing. And I I still get upset myself, uh, certainly when when people bring stories. And in fact, the story I'm going to tell in a minute is uh, is one of those uh, a little little distressing. So we're going to now 
turn left and we've hit the road. We're back onto a tarmac road. Uh, it's one that you can drive down if you're coming from the direction of the Bull Core Digger. And we're going to start walking towards the Bull Core Digger and we're going to stop at, at the earliest memorial. This is the memorial that was uh, built here, the very first one. This was really a combination of three things. It was the local people who were keen that something should be put on the battlefield. It was the Western Front Association, which is a, a British association, but branches in Australia now. And an Australian historian, uh, no longer with us, called Tony Spagnoli. Um, and they got together and decided that wouldn't it be nice to, to produce something here that commemorated the terrible losses of both the British and, and the Australians, but this is particularly on the Australian battlefield. Um, the money was raised, not a great deal of money, uh, to create a, a memorial. And in fact, I, I only found this out a, about a year ago, that the actual memorial itself, which is a cross, was not created uh, for this memorial. It was from an old cemetery. Uh, and it's it's from a, um, a memorial, uh, presumably a family memorial site that was pulled down in Arras, in a cemetery in Arras, and they utilised the old cross from that to uh, be used for this memorial. So it's, this is its second usage uh, here on the... I actually think it's quite nice in, in many ways. Um, so it was brought here in 1982 and quietly, not no real pomp and circumstance at this period there wasn't, the Australian ambassador came out from Paris and unveiled it in 1982. Um there's a li the little story that goes with that I just find just unbelievably moving. And this is about a lady called Gladys uh, Stafford, who, when she heard about this in Australia, wrote to the French embassy saying how pleased she was that at last something was being done on the Bullcourt battlefield as her brother had been uh, killed there during the fighting. Um, that letter was received in, in 1981. She then donated a little bit of money. It wouldn't have been a great deal, I don't think. She was a very elderly lady, uh, to the, the, the memorial itself and explained about her brother and uh, how pleased, uh, how pleased she, uh, she was. She even went on to say that her house in Australia was actually called Bullcore to commemorate uh, her, the loss of her brother. Um, we're going to leap forward a, a, a little bit now. And as we will, those of you who've done any kind of research will be aware that almost everything is online now. We know all about uh, when soldiers were lost, where they're now buried, where they're commemorated. But of course, if you go back to pre-computers, and of course the 1980s is pre-computers, then she had been told, or her family had been told, she was only a very young girl when he was lost, um, that he was missing. And he was, he, he was missing. But what she was un unaware of was that his body had been had been recovered in 1948. And so his name was still on the memorial at Villas Bretonneau, but in fact he had a grave. Now, it's, it's terrible that it's in the 1990s before that was that was actually brought to the family's attention the the family had no idea poor old uh, gladys was now dead she ne never was aware that her brother had a grave but in 1948 five australian soldiers the route we've just walked from the six uh, cross uh, crossroads to the memorial itself he was found at the side of the road along with five others so when including him five australian soldiers all found Two of them were identified, and if you look in the records, which we can do, the Commonwealth War Graves records, we can now see online that he was identified because he still had his identity disc with him, and so that's how he was uh, how he was identified. So he has a grave. He's buried very close to where I live, um, up at uh, very uh, Highwood. So he's buried here on the uh, on the Somme. That was again the open cemetery at that time in in the nineteen forty eight. 
Um, and so I'm going. To, I haven't been to see him yet. I'm going to pop up there and uh, and go and uh, see him and commemorate him and Gladys, his sister, uh, who sadly was never aware that he had been found in the 1940s and actually uh, has a has a grave. Um, I should say the reason why she didn't find out was there was no policy at that time that the Commonwealth War Graves, when they recovered a soldier in the 1940s and 50s, there was no policy of, of trying to spend a lot of time tracking down the family. There would perhaps be a cursory look at, the, at his service file, uh, perhaps a quick letter to the address, last known address of his relative, because his mother was long since dead. And so the family were never told that he'd been his body had been found. And I just found that extraordinary. Now we go to such lengths to to track down family members of uh, of people that are discovered on the battlefields, but at this period that was not done. What a sad story, Pete. I, I wasn't aware of that until you told me about that before this podcast. And just what a sad story. It's it, the, the Cross Memorial has always been fascinating to me because it was, as you say, put up in the early eighties. It was a time when First World War veterans were really coming to the battlefield for the last time. This was this was the the nineteen eighties was the era when the veterans made their last trips. You know, they'd all be in their nineties by now. This was really the time when they made their last visit to the battlefield if they were going to come, and even even veterans from Australia. And the Cross Memorial at Bullecourt, because it was the only memorial there on the battlefield, it almost became a little bit of a shrine. And I think the, the way that it had been put together, the fact that it had been funded by the local village, and it was, it was seen very much as a community memorial. And the thing that I loved about it is it, it started to become embellished. The, the base of it became embellished with private... Um, memorials private little plaques and things people veterans would come or family members would come and it started to be covered in private little plaques and sadly a lot of them have disappeared since i since i was first visiting there's not as many there as there used to be i i came and i remember one of the first times i saw it was one of the plaques that struck me the most said this on it in memory of all my mates killed in action lest we forget rm gun of the fourth aif um and i then looked him up for my book and uh, he served in the fourth division he was in the 13th field ambulance uh, and uh, he was at Gallipoli, he fought at Messine, uh, and then obviously he fought at at, uh, at Bullcor, uh, and he was uh, evacuated uh, sick in 1918 and returned to Australia. So he survived the war, obviously, because then he came back years later and left this plaque. But uh, last few times, it's not there anymore. It's gone. It's disappeared. And so I just, you know, I, I just remember Private Gunn and, um, you know, the fact that he came to this memorial and left his little plaque. It's lovely. Well, what I should have said, and I didn't, um, is that Gladys organised uh, a plaque for uh, her brother to be placed on the memorial it was the first one and i don't know if that's there either his name was private alfred king of the 57th battalion so i'm looking forward to my next trip out to go and see if that plaque is still on the memorial i don't know whether it is but you are right uh, matt there's there is a distinct lack of of plaques on that uh, memorial now there were an awful lot more in the uh, in the past it's getting a little tired i have to say and it could do with a little bit of money spent on it just to to uh, to improve it having said that i haven't been for a, a few months now and it May, may have been improved and you often find that these things uh, money is found it'll be the local commune that will find the money to uh, to improve it there is a little box there now so you can actually put in uh, there's a list of, of soldiers that died at Bullcore and uh, that was privately created and you can also add your own little stories and put it in this little box there so again it's the difficulty is you can only do it on foot. You cannot park a car there. There is nowhere to park a car, so you have to be on foot to actually go and have a good look at it. Um, so I'm looking forward to going to uh, to, to reassess it with uh, perhaps a different view to what I've thought about it in the in the past because I did think it was getting a little tatty and and whether it, it is now no longer needed. But I think it is. I think it is because it is where people put private little things that they don't feel is, is right to put on the bull core digger. 
Well, it's a unique memorial in many ways on the Western Front, particularly from the Australian perspective, and the fact that, as you say, it was a community memorial and then it was a, a focal point for veterans when they returned. You know, very, very old men coming back, as as, as Reg Gunn did, as, as Gladys did, paid her respects to her brother. You know, people uh, coming in and remembering the battle years on, and it's 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 wonderful we've still got that connection with it. So uh, I, I hope the plaques have been um, removed to be cared for by the local people and not simply lost or, or stolen. Uh, but who knows? I, ha- I haven't found out what happened to them. But a very interesting memorial to visit the Little Cross Memorial at Bullock Court. It is. Uh, we're getting to the end of the tour now, Peter. Aren't we? We're heading back now. We'll end up back at Cobbers at the at the statue at the Memorial Park. Yep. Uh, just a couple of things I wanted just to add. I just think they're interesting. I did, we haven't mentioned that in the War Memorial um, in uh, Canberra, um, the AWM, there is actually a diorama of this battlefield. So it's always worth uh, going to have a look at because we didn't mention the weather conditions, I don't think either. This is a very odd battle for the time of the year. It's April. You'd expect it to be in the spring, but there was a blizzard going on during the during the first battle. So this battle we'd be discussing all took place in, in snow. Um, and that's well worth thinking about, that this is cold, horrible, snowy conditions uh, uh, when, the, when the battle took place. And a final one I just want to quickly talk about, because I just like this direct contact to some of the men that fought here. Um, in a place called Naor, which is well behind the lines, there are these underground caverns that soldiers went into to, to visit. It was a religious site. It was just an interesting place to go to. And two of the guys that will fight here at Bulcor wrote their names on those cavern walls over and over again. And they're called Cecil Hyde and William Police. Now, we don't know why they wrote their names in so many locations. There's been some thought that they may have been guides. They may have actually been earning a few bob by taking people round these underground caverns at this place called Naor. Um, but in the chalk, they scratch their names over and over again. They were obviously buddies because their names are close to each other. Oh, were they? We don't know. Again, we're not sure. They're in, certainly in the same 16th Battalion. Were they mates or did they just happen to be both very keen on scratching their names? We don't know. One of them will be killed during the fighting. He, he died and the other one will be captured. So um, Cecil was killed in action and uh, William uh, was uh, captured. And in fact, he's well known because uh, there is a little archive of him in the uh, um, in the, the War Memorial, the, the Australian uh, War Memorial, uh, with some photos of him. And we know he played rugby in the prisoner of war camp once he's recovered from, from his, his wounds. But I think it's just nice, nice to physically go and see. Before they came to this battle, they had the time to have a bit of a relaxation to go into these uh, these underground chambers and scratch their uh, their names into the uh, into the walls. And I just find that just a, a fascinating little little direct link to uh, to men that fought and died here uh, at Bulcock. That is a fascinating story, Pete. And um, as we're walking back to the Memorial Park along the sunken road, another person that should be mentioned, I probably should have mentioned him at the start of the walk, is, a, is Lieutenant Rupert Moon, who is a bit of an interesting character. I, I love the story of Rupert Moon. He attacked here during the second battle. He was in the 58th Battalion. He was 24. Um, and he's, it's interesting. I've read his service record, and he's constantly being berated by senior officers for being basically a pretty crappy officer. They just didn't think he they didn't think he was of the right character. They thought he was too shy. He was only a small man. They didn't think he was he was up to the job, but he was a lieutenant and he led his men here. And I don't know what happened, but he turned that all around in one instant moment during the second battle because basically the area between the what is now the Memorial Park and the village was the area where he attacked. So all across that ground, including the sunken road that you're now walking along. And basically he just was a one man offensive. Uh, he he was wounded very early in the attack, but didn't let that stop him and carried on. And he yelled out, come on, boys, don't turn me down to his men. So they all rallied behind him. 
and I'm just reading his his accounts here of what he did to 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 earn the Victoria Cross, and he he jumped in and captured a bunch of Germans. He jumped into a sunken road and captured some Germans in a dugout. 186 Germans he captured from a series of dugouts in the sunken road you are now walking along. And then he called his men to come into the sunken road and they got into a bomb fight with the Germans. And then finally, very late in the day, he put his head up over the top of the sunken road you are now walking along to have a look towards the village and a sniper shot him in the face, which he survived. Uh, and then he lay in the <laughs> he lay in the sunken road, joking with his men that he, he said, "I have got three holes in me <laughs> from his wounds, and not one of them's good enough to get me back to England." <laughs> and he was lying there with blood and sweat streaming down his face from where he'd just been shot in the face. So, uh, but he did survive his uh, his wounds. He was awarded the Victoria Cross. Unsupply- unsurprisingly, went back to England and never returned to the fighting after that. He was too badly wounded. But as we walk along this stretch, what I love about that story, what I love about what really connects me with the history is we're just walking on a sunken road now. If we're walking past the Memorial Park or back to the village, again, we're in the scene of these epic actions, you know, and you can imagine Rupert Moon springing into the, the sunken road and single-handedly taking on the whole German army as, uh, as they fought all around him. So just the extraordinary, these stories that uh, that's come to light in the smallest little parts of the battlefield. Yeah, uh, and that that brings it to life, doesn't it? When you know these stories and you can tell them uh, as as you walk around it, and perhaps for another day we'll actually uh, tell the, the 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 story of both attacks. I think that we need to have another podcast uh, where we we discuss it in detail, the story of of both of the attacks. Well, Pete, it's been absolutely wonderful. Long podcast, but uh, it's worthy of it because Bulacore is is one of the half dozen most important sites for Australians. I mean, ten thousand Australians were killed or wounded in the two great battles at Bulcor. It's just an extraordinary amount. And, and you know, this 1917 was the deadliest year for Australians in history. And uh, this is this is part of the reason why. Between, the between obviously, the terrible fighting at Passchendaele later in the year and also the, the horrific battles of Bulacor in this first half of the year, you can see why so many Australians, 30,000 Australians, uh, killed or wounded uh, during this time in, in 1917. Just absolutely horrific numbers. So, Pete, as always, a, a very emotional journey and just a, an insightful journey. Thank you very much for uh, for joining us and, and just sharing your thoughts on this important battlefield. No, it's been great. I look forward to getting back there and uh, having a look at the Little Cross again and uh, and walking, walking this ground myself. Thanks, Pete, and uh, thank you, everyone, for listening. We'll see you next week. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. 
Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Thanks for listening to the podcast. If you would like to support the show, there's a couple of ways you can do it. Firstly, you can become a member. For a small monthly fee, you can subscribe to the show and listen to every episode ad-free and also receive exclusive episodes directly from Pete and I. So see the link in the show notes to sign up at ACAST Plus and become a member of the show. Also, if you want to make a one-off contribution, you can now buy us a coffee. Visit buymeacoffee.com forward slash battlewalks and you can make a small contribution there. See you next week.